morning. Welcome to guests. Welcome everybody. We uh, we are going to continue our series. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series where we are going through the gospel chronologically. So going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and trying to do it in a chronological order, which sometimes can be challenging, but I think is extremely uh, valuable for us to just look at this as a narrative story from the beginning of Jesus's life all the way through the end of the story. Next month, my wife and I are going to celebrate 20 years of marriage, which is crazy to me because I don't feel like I'm old enough to have 20 years of marriage. What's even crazier is that just a couple days ago, our oldest child turned 17 years old which I'm not okay with. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like it's, it's not okay with me, but it's happening whether I like it or not. It's wild. And so that got me thinking about how all this Risto stuff started 20 years ago on our wedding day. We got married in my wife's hometown of Redding, California, which if you've never been there in the summertime, you need to thank Jesus that you've never been there in the summertime because it is miserably hot in Redding, California in the summertime. We decided to get married on August 16th in Redding, California, and it was 115 degrees the day that we got married. And so if you went to my house right now, you would see zero photos of our wedding day because I look like I just got done with daily double football practice in every picture. I'm in a full suit and it's 115, and all of our pictures were taken outside, and uh, they're, they're worthless. Katie looks beautiful. She's, she's glistening, uh, but, but I'm sweating, and, and that's the difference. If you don't know that, women don't sweat. They glisten. It's very different completely, but uh, it was a hot day, and then another thing that was really interesting about my wedding day was you could see a definite difference in, let's call it the culture of my family and Katie's family. Katie's family uh, are pretty conservative. Her mom and dad were both in full-time ministry. Uh, everyone's a Christian. Everyone is well-behaved. <laughs> and, uh, and in their family, they were teetotalers. Like, there was no alcohol in their family. And so, out of respect for her family, our wedding day was dry. There was no alcohol at our wedding. My family of origin, on the other hand, saw weddings as an opportunity to get loose, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I remember weddings as a little kid and seeing things for the first time in my life and being like, I don't know what's happening right now. But that's how weddings would go in my family. And so you could see this difference, but where that especially got interesting was that some of my family members somehow got word that there was not going to be any alcohol at the reception. So somewhere between the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception, they went and got some beverages on their own. And they showed up to our reception a few drinks deep. And again, my wife had been from a pretty conservative family, and so... She really had never spent much time around anybody who had been in that position. 
And so she was very confused why she was getting this weird wedding advice from people that seemed not okay. And, and people just kept walking up to her and say things like, you just got to make sure that you love him every day. And so that was interesting. Thankfully, thankfully nothing went horrendously wrong, and there was no major public embarrassment at our wedding, which I've heard stories of weddings that have gone way further in that direction. But it was an interesting day. It was a great day in our lives, and thankfully we made it through. The story that we're going to talk about today in the Bible has a bit in common with the story of Katie and I's wedding day. If you have a Bible or device, we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. As I said last week, if you weren't with us, the chronological story of Jesus is most easily seen in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're written as synoptics. They are a synopsis of the story. But then John jumps in here and has stories that the other ones don't have. And this is one of those stories, is a story called The Wedding at Cana. And it's the story of Jesus' first sign and miracle that is written for us in the Bible as soon as he begins his public ministry. So if you have a Bible device, look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. In Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the ran, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, "Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. Has not yet come." His mother said to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brother and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay, so for some context, again, if you weren't with us last week, this whole story takes place right after the events we covered last week, which is where Jesus calls some of the men who will become his apostles to start to follow him. And the first event that they go to is a wedding celebration. They go and partake in this wedding at Cana. We don't know all the details of how the disciples ended up invited to this wedding, but we do know that Cana was near Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And so uh, it seems like in the passage that Jesus' mother, Mary, had something to do 
with this wedding. She was a host of some sort. And so we don't know, but maybe these are people that Jesus and his mother have known for Jesus' whole life. Maybe they're even related to them. We don't know exactly, but somehow they are intimately involved with this wedding. And I want you to notice something about Jesus as he attends this joyous occasion and partakes in the festivities. He's not the party killer. Did you notice that? Jesus goes to the wedding and he doesn't immediately say, Everyone stop dancing. Stop having fun. He doesn't say, everyone break up into small groups and pray. And then I'm going to do a sermon. He doesn't do that. There are times for all of those things, but there's also time for celebrations. And Jesus participates in these joyous occasions. Sometimes we think things are not spiritual enough unless we say, stop having fun. But that's not how Jesus treated this celebration, this kind of first public display. He goes and he has fun at the wedding with his friends. Now, weddings at this time were an incredibly big deal. Like We think of them as a big deal now, and they are. But in this culture, in this time, weddings were a massive ordeal. Sometimes they would last a week long. The celebrations would go on for days and days and days. And people would uh, spend time together and and fellowship and just show joy for the young bride and groom. They were often the most important party or festivity that you would have in your entire life. And so there was planning and there was uh, so much that went into it. And if things did not go how they should go, there were actually some significant ramifications that would take place. We even have historical documents of lawsuits that took place because somebody brought the wrong kind of gift to a wedding, and they would be sued for it because it would bring shame to the bride and groom. So when we read in this story that they ran out of wine, this is not a small problem for the people who are in charge of this festivity. In fact, it's a massive problem. It's a massive social embarrassment. It could lead to legal problems. It could mean that the families of the bride and groom were hostile towards one another, which I'm sure has never happened in any of your families. And in their culture, everything is kind of guilt and shame based. The the guilt or shame that you feel about something not going the way that it's expected to go could cause you massive embarrassment and you could be socially ostracized from your village, from your families. It's a big problem. And so when Mary goes to her son, Jesus, and she says, they have no wine, she's not just telling him the problem. She is appealing to him knowing who he is and what he can do. She's appealing to him to save these people from potential disaster in their lives. She's asking him to be a rescuer. Now, there's another potential thing that might be going on here, which we don't know from the writing specifically, but there are a lot of Bible scholars who have thought that this might be a thing. 
Again, this is taking place near Mary and Jesus' hometown. Probably mostly people that she's known her whole life. He's known his whole life. And for Jesus' entire life, there's been this black cloud of rumors that have gone on around Mary. Because all the way back to when he was born, people have been whispering, saying, she was unfaithful to Joseph. She says that Jesus was, you know, born of God, but really she's just covering for her sinfulness. And so there are these rumors, this backbiting that's going, and there might be a part of Mary that is hoping that if Jesus does this public miracle, if people see the power that he has, suddenly that will lift and take away the shame that she has been dealing with for decades. Now, we don't know that. That's reading into a little bit, but it's an interesting side note that maybe that's part of what's going on. What we do have written in the story is Jesus's interesting reply to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, how many of you men, if you would have called your mother woman, would have got smacked? Yeah, quite a few. Absolutely. My grandma would have laughed, but that's just her. So he does not say, oh, mother dearest, my wonderful life-giving matriarch, I will do whatever you ask of me. No, he replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in the context of that day and age, he's actually not being disrespectful at all, which we would expect Jesus not to be disrespectful to his mother. In the original language, he's actually just using a word that's similar to ma'am. So he's not being disrespectful, but he's also not being like super close, right? He's not using like, mommy dearest. He says, ma'am. And so that's odd. He's not being rude, but he's not being affectionate. It's actually the same word later in John that he uses when they talk about the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. And so he uses this same word for his mother that he uses for these other women in the story. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus address his mother in this manner? I would, I would venture to say he's redefining his relationship with his mother. Because for 30 years, he's been Jesus, Mary's boy her eldest son. At this time, it would seem that Joseph has probably already died. We don't read anything about him in the story. And so that's who Jesus is. She's, he is her, her boy. But now his priorities have changed. His life is no longer about just being Mary's son. Now he's doing his public ministry. And from now on, his priorities have to be to do the work of his father. And so he's reestablishing this relationship with his mother, not saying, mommy, dearest, but saying, ma'am, I, I have other priorities in my life. Men, I don't know if you've ever had, that have, had to have that kind of conversation with your mom. It doesn't always go well. When Katie and I first got married, I remember there was some things where my grandmother, who raised me, would would go to her and be like, well, this is how Nick likes his sandwiches made. This is how Nick likes his laundry done. This is how, I was spoiled, I admit it, okay? She did my laundry. 
this is how Nick likes this. And so my wife would kind of get hurt and be like, your grandma thinks that I'm dumb and that I don't know how to care for you. And so I had to have a conversation with my grandma one day and explain to her in a nice way, grandma, you need to understand you're not, you're not the primary woman in my life anymore. That's my wife. It did not go well for me. Mamas, I know that you love your boys. Don't do that to your boys. Allow them to grow up. When it's time for them to cleave to someone else, kick them out of the nest. But also don't be like, I can't ever speak to you again. It hurts too much. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> Give them the space that they need. Love them. Also, I know that that's hard, but you got to do it. His identity, Jesus' identity from here on out, is not based on his earthly family. It is now based entirely on the fact that he is the Son of God. And we see this in other Bible stories. Maybe you remember, there's a story where Jesus and his disciples are talking to some people, and someone comes in and says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here to see you. And his response seems kind of cold. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hand out towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is now his priority. His priority is the kingdom of God. Despite Jesus saying this, I love this, because it seems like the most like passive-aggressive Jewish mama thing ever. Jesus kind of coldly says, This is none of my business. And then his mom just turns to the servants and says, do what he says. Like, she just knows, like, ultimately, you're going to come around. You're going to do what I asked you to do. Right? And I don't know if Jesus took a moment to pray to his father, like, can I do this? Is this the right thing? I don't know. But ultimately, he, he decides that he is going to do what his mother has asked. And she says, do whatever he tells you. As another kind of aside to this, that's some really good advice. Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do, right? And this is the only command that we have in the Bible from the words of Mary. Maybe you grew up in a church system like I did where Mary is honored greatly. Well, if you want to honor Mary, do what she says by doing what Jesus says. These are her words, the only command, and actually the last words we have from her in the scriptures are, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So let's honor that advice. It's real good advice. Back to the story. Jesus decides, in fact, to help. He points to six jars, and when you think of jars, I mean 20, 30 gallon jars. These are massive jars, a total of 120 to 180 gallons. And he tells, to, tells them to fill each one up with water to the brim. I was trying to figure out in my head how to like explain how much wine that is. And all I could come up with, this is a weird thing to come up with, but you know the water heater you probably have in your house? If you have a full-size water heater... That's 80 gallons. So this is like one and a half to two and a quarter water heaters full of wine. Or if you've got a little bit of a sketchier history like I do, this is 8 to 12 kegs worth of wine. 
far, far more than would have been necessary for this party. And so we see here even that Jesus is not just blessing them, but he blesses them above and beyond what they could have possibly needed. And we don't know, but maybe he's even blessing them so much that they can take some of that wine after the ceremony's over and sell it and start to live their life together with a little bit of financial blessing. We don't know, but that's possible. What's amazing about this story to me too, we don't even see the miracle take place. Do you notice that? He just says, go get the water, and then the water's wine. He doesn't say like, bippity-boppity-boop. Right? He doesn't pray like he does with the loaves and fishes. It just just is. And I love that because Jesus, if you were with us at the beginning of the series, he is the Logos of God. He is the very creative power of God. He doesn't need to do anything special. He just decides that the water's wine and it's wine. Because he is that powerful. He's that amazing. And I think it's so funny when people read these stories and they try to kind of explain away the impossible parts of the story. I don't know if you've ever watched people try to explain, like, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, no. He's Jesus. He's the Logos of God. He can make these things happen. And it's funny to me when people try to explain it away because they have a hard time. Like, well, no, how does Jesus do that? Well, he's Jesus. Right? There was one Bible commentary that said that when, when Jesus feeds thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, that it wasn't actually a miracle. It was just that the little boy was willing to share and that everybody was willing to share. And it was just a social experiment. And no, he's Jesus. What's really funny to me is when people have a hard time like wrapping their head around Jesus can make water from wine, or they have a hard time wrapping their head around like Jonah can get swallowed by a fish, but they don't have a problem with in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. If the first sentence of the Bible is true, everything else is cake. If you can create all of existence out of nothing, then turning some water into some wine is really not a big deal. It's Tuesday. But this is not just a miracle of abundance, right? Gallons, 120, 180 gallons. It's also, I love this, it's a, it's a miracle of quality. I love this because Jesus tells the servants to take some of the wine to the master of the feast, which is the MC, the, the guy who's in charge of making sure that the wedding is fun and things keep going. And he says something amazing. He says, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, he says, usually people serve the highest quality first, and then once people have had a few and they're not worried about the quality, that's when they bring out the cheap junk. He says, but you have waited, and you've brought out the best, the highest quality, last. So what does that show us? When Jesus does something, he does it really, really well. It is the highest quality. When Jesus does something in your life, he is going to do it to the highest degree, to the highest quality. 
Now I'm going to talk about something for a little bit because this story always leads to this conversation. Even though I don't think this is the point of the story at all. I'm going to say that. But it always comes to this. Someone will come up after and say, so does this mean that I can drink? Not the point of the story. But since someone is definitely going to come ask me that, we're going to jump into it. People often want a very simple answer to this question, yes or no. But as with most things, simple answers do not answer difficult questions. The answer to this has to do with the context that you're in and what do you mean by drink alcohol. Because the Bible clearly speaks about wine a lot. You read through the whole Bible, you're going to see a lot of references to wine. And it's even seen as a symbol of joy in the Bible. In the scriptures, Jesus clearly, clearly drank wine. The apostles clearly drank wine. Paul instructs Timothy, his protege, to drink a little wine for his stomach. And so clearly drinking some wine is not a sin in of itself, although there are some Christians who have made the claim that the alcohol at that time was not actually alcohol. It was more like grape juice or it was wine, but it was like so diluted that you could definitely not drink enough to ever get drunk. And I've heard all these arguments, but I've never actually seen any proof that that's true. And so they, they try to kind of explain it away, but I don't think that that's founded anywhere. So it seems to me that drinking wine or alcohol is not forbidden by the Lord or by the Scripture. However, the context matters a lot. Because the Bible doesn't only talk about drinking wine. It also gives us some parameters. It says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 lists drunkenness among the works of the flesh that are opposed to the works of the Spirit. So it seems clear that the Lord does not ban wine, but he does tell us that being drunk is wrong, and that being a drunkard, someone who is consistently drunk, is sin. And then there's this other idea that I think maybe makes it even more challenging for us as we look at this yes or no answer. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is speaking about immorality, and he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but see this, but I will not be dominated by anything. So again, I think we look at this idea of drinking some wine, and by the way, for you guys, this is all if you're an adult. It's a sin for you, period. Okay. Because laws, you know. We find the idea of drinking wine, and it, it's not in and of itself sinful, but what does it mean to be dominated by something? I think this is a huge key in this conversation for us. Because if you're somebody that deals with an addictive personality, if you're somebody who... Man, if there's an addiction that can take place, I'm going to catch it. Then you need to understand that about yourself, and you need to realize that you are going to be dominated 
by that thing. Things that can easily cause addiction can become dominant in our lives. But I would challenge that even more because I think we have conversations, I'll talk with people, and even anything that starts to make you feel anxious if you don't have it, I would say has a dominant effect in your life. You're being dominant. Maybe you're not somebody who would ever drink to the point of drunkenness or excess, but you say, but I do need a couple beers every night just to relax. Have you reached that point where that is a dominant thing in your life? Where you can't go without? And I would say that you're in that position of maybe it has some domination over you. Or maybe you think, man, I can't put the kids to bed at night without a glass of wine. I think you're in a risky position there where it is dominant over you. Or let's be honest and talk about the current context that we live in in Montana today. If you're like, man, I just can't deal with the stress of my life unless I eat a couple edibles every day. That sounds to me like something that is dominating your life. And so again, it's not this easy answer, can I drink? Can I partake? What is it doing in your life? What kind of power does it have over you? And what is it hindering you possibly from? Because everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. And then if all that's not complicated enough, then we have the whole issue of, are you causing a brother or sister to stumble? Because this is a whole other thing. We get really caught up in, I have liberty. I have the right. Yeah. But you also have the responsibility to love your brothers and sisters above those liberties and rights. And so if you're going out and having dinner with some friends and you know that that person has a struggle, that there is something dominating in their life, then just don't partake in those things while you're with them. It's real simple. Don't cause them to stumble because you are more concerned with your own rights and liberty. Don't think that they're legalistic or they're just trying to ruin your fun. Just realize you have an opportunity to love them. Honor other people's weaknesses when you're with them, just as you would want them to honor yours or somebody else that you love. So, big question. Not the actual point of this story, but something that people are wondering about. Can you drink as a Christian? The answer is, it depends. You're welcome. As we start to bring this to an end today, I want to point out two last big things in this story that I think are really good. The first one, if you still have your Bible or device, the key to this whole section is verse 11. I'm going to read it again. Because it tells us quite clearly why Jesus does this. Why he performs this miracle. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So why does Jesus perform this miracle? to manifest his glory and to cause these men who have just started to follow him to believe in him. 
and not just believe in him as their rabbi who has some really good spiritual advice and some guidance, but to realize this is not like any other rabbi. He has the power to do things that are unfathomable. And I need to believe in that power. He's beyond anything that they can grasp. And the second and final thing I want to call attention to here is, I think it is a beautiful thing that Jesus' first recorded sign involves a wedding feast. And it dives into the larger symbolism of everything that we're reading today, because we might wonder, why would this be Jesus' first miracle? Like, nobody's dying, right? It's nothing urgent, although it was for them and their culture. However, I think if you actually look at this story again, it is the perfect picture to start the public ministry of Jesus, bringing joy and redemption to a wedding feast. Because if you've been with us for the last year or two, we went through the whole book of Revelation. And you might remember that Jesus' ministry culminates at the very end in the redemption of his people, and that is a wedding feast. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so we see here, book ended, the very end, the very culmination of the ministry of Jesus is the marriage feast between he, the the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And so he starts out everything. The first sign, the first miracle, is to bring joy and redemption to a wedding feast. It shows us this tiny microcosm of the joy and celebration that is to come when Jesus returns for his bride, which is all of us and every believer who has ever followed him. He is the one that comes to the rescue. He is the savior to the bridal party that is in desperate danger of losing everything because of our lack. He comes and he provides the wine of joy. And it's a wine that is far greater than any wine that has come before it. His joy surpasses the law. It surpasses the old covenant. It is greater than anything. And more than just that joy, he comes and he grants his bride the fine linens to wear, which are bright and pure, taking away any of the guilt and shame that has stained in the past. It will be the greatest marriage feast in the history of creation. And I think Jesus gives us the tiniest of tastes when he gives us this story of his public ministry beginning by just redeeming 
a wedding feast just outside of his hometown where it all began. Will you be there at that ultimate wedding feast? Are you part of the bride of Christ? Have you heard the call of Jesus to follow him and then began to follow him, to see what he does, to see the power that he has in your life? Jesus tells us that he is the only way. That there are no invitations to that final wedding feast that do not come from him. That he is the only way to get there. And the only way for us to get there is to follow him to the feast. I pray today that all of us will do so.